Amen. You may be seated. Amen. We have just sung the great glory of the gospel that our God has everything under control. If you do not have a sermon outline, just lift your hand and these kind gentlemen will be glad to give one to you. If you're new to us this morning, we want you to know that we study the Bible and it is worth our time and our effort and therefore we have an outline that you can take with you, not only in this message but also from here. We've just been singing about the nations raging and the kingdoms rising and falling. We live in a day and a time when Christians, God's people, need to be assured of His great strength, power, and peace. And the passage that we're going to study this morning is gloriously fitted for this November 1st Sunday. Uh, If you have your Bible, turn with me to Micah chapter 1. And uh, as we do that, and as you're turning there, I'll just say, you know, it is so wonderful to hear you singing so gloriously. It was so strange for these months when sometimes uh, me and Pastor Lucas and Pastor Jason and Alex and a handful of other people were, were seeking to in some way um, simulate this, and it is impossible even with a bunch of smelly guys that were up here working and we'd pull them all out of the worship center to go sing a hymn or sing a couple of songs um, to go with our worship time together. And I'm so thankful. Aren't you thankful for the guys who did that a few months ago? Just Sunday after, or we were, at that time we were recording on Saturdays and we had the opportunity to just have some semblance of corporate worship. God's people are made to worship corporately. And that's why Pat Sheldon would say, man, this just, this online thing is killing me. It's not working for me. You know, I kind of, I'm older, I'm kind of at risk, but I'm going to come. And, you know, Marcy and I had to make that decision about her and each to his own. I know that there's different ones that feel different ways about that. And we want to affirm everyone as before the Lord, they are seeking to do what seems to be best for their family or for themselves and their own health. But how beautiful it is for us to worship together. I know just a moment ago it was kind of awkward. Uh, usually we stand right at that moment and some of you were like, should I stand? Should I sit? Let's just all relax and just follow whatever the guy says, all right? Um, that way nobody's, nobody's uh, uh, distracting anyone else. You know, when we, when we sing together, this is the time for us to bring our voices in unison. And there's a beauty in that. There's a, cor- there's a choral nature of that, that God uses the music in our own hearts and us worshiping together. I want to encourage you, when we sing, you sing, and you sing from your heart out. Um, you know, at the end, if we want to clap, sometimes that's appropriate. There's sometimes when it's not. Sometimes when it's, man, we've just finished a song that is a uh, a contemplative song or a, um, a song that would cause us to be still. It's okay for us to be silent and, and let that wash over us. And then other times it's fine to be joyful. Whatever we do, let's seek to do it together. But when we sing, let's sing. When we pray, let's pray. When we study, let's engage our minds and our hearts. Amen? Yeah. Amen. We come to uh, the, the book of Micah once again. Some of you are brand new to us, and we don't want you to be left behind or left out. Some of you are joining us online. We want you to have a little bit of a review so you can understand. We're studying one of the very small books of the Old Testament, and in fact, a book that would very often be skipped and misunderstood, a book that has things in it that would cause us to have jarring thoughts and jarring um, just contemplation of, of, of imagery that's very difficult. I mean, uh, in just a moment, we'll, we'll remember what the title of the last sermon was, but, but first let's look and let's see what this little letter of prophecy is about. The prophecy of Micah, and remember, this is a synopsis of 25 years of his preaching. There are three prophecy cycles, and um, I'm not going to put up the answers yet. I'm going to see if you can make yourself remember. This is the third time I'm asking you to try to make yourself remember how the prophecy goes. There's two key words for each one of these prophecies. First, there is one, and then there's beautifully a second one. And what are they? The first one is there is judgment. 
the judgment of God against sin. But then behind the judgment, by God's mercy and His grace, He comes and He rescues His people. He comes and He preserves His people. And so it's not just about judgment. There's a lot of people that misunderstand the Old Testament. They do not see the flowing grace of God throughout the Old Testament. And it's just simply because perhaps no one's ever taught them or perhaps they've never taken the time to really look and see. But in the book of Micah, as well as the other prophets, there is both judgment and, praise God, there is mercy. The setting, the people of Israel are in rebellion and have sinned against God. That's what we do in a fallen world. We have a holy God that we sin against, and even the people of Israel, His chosen people, have sinned horribly against him. And notice these three cycles of judgment. The first cycle you see there, um, I want you to notice these. This is destruction and regathering. Above the word destruction, can you just put a J? And what does that stand for? Judgment. And above the word regathering, what does that, put put an M above regathering, what does that stand for? Mercy. Okay, so destruction and regathering, judgment and mercy. Look at the second cycle. Doom, what goes above that? Judgment, J. And then what? Deliverance. What goes above deliverance? Put an M, mercy. And then look at the third cycle. We haven't got there yet, but the third cycle, there are denunciations. They are denounced. That's the judgment of God, but then what is after that? salvation. Do you see the mercy? So in these chapters 1 and 2, first cycle, chapter 3, 4, and 5, second cycle, chapter um, 6 and 7, only seven chapters in the whole book, the third cycle is this. So look at the second cycle right there in that middle one, and I want you to put a big circle around that one. It's the deliverance through the coming kingdom. So last week, we looked at the one above that, doom, the doom for leaders and false prophets and the doom for Jerusalem. But then after that judgment is declared that is coming because of their wickedness, we see that God also tells of his deliverance. He has purposes in every bit of this, glorious purposes, but put a big circle around that one that says deliverance because that's where we're going to study a little bit this morning as part of that. Notice down there at the bottom, notice, notice, the judgment God's judgment is is being heralded, is being proclaimed. He is showing us that we are wrong, and when we are wrong, what do we need to do? We need to see that we're wrong, and we need to repent. This is part of His great plan to show us who He is and who we are not in our need for Him. Notice this and fill it in. In every cycle, God's mercy, I love it, God's mercy prevails for His people in and over his judgments. So his mercy is even in the judgment. His mercy is even in this that's calling us to recognize who he is and who we are not. Now before we launch into chapter four, I want you to just look up at the screen for a moment and I want us to just kind of think about something. We have a lot on our minds right now, don't we? I heard somebody comment yesterday, I've never looked so forward to that ball dropping in all my life. But you know, let me remind you, just because the ball dropped doesn't mean it's over. If we really study the Bible, we can see that as we grow closer and closer to the return of Christ, it's going to get dicier and dicier. And so we would do well to educate ourselves about what God's plan is and what it's not. We would do well to align ourselves increasingly with him and not the world. My dad used to say, son, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. God has called us in Christ to be saved by his grace and his mercy. My friends, I want you to see with me that the world has troubles. We in this room have personal struggles. 
We in this room have, I mean, any myriad of things that you personally deal with. For some, it's cancer. For some, that it, 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 it's, it's all kinds of financial issues. It's, it's just this issue of we all have personal issues. And right there with that very often is family issues. There's usually someone in our family that we're concerned about, or there's usually a concern within our family of one type or another. That's, that's the nature of knowing one another well. We have issues. We have family issues. Well, this morning we have this stress of an election. And it's not just an election, but it's election turmoil. This is perhaps going to be the most contentious election that there's ever been. And even afterwards, you know, it's on our mind. What will happen in the next week? But not only the election but also the COVID crisis. This has been heavy on our mind and our heart for the last few weeks. COVID, whether a real biological threat to us personally or whether it's the hysteria of it that has caused such a disruption to our lives and to the world and perhaps even being made worse and hijacked by all the political issues, not just between presidential candidates, but, but even between nations and ideologies. Then there's racial strife, racial strife here in this nation and racial strife around the world. Just this last week, three people murdered in a church in France, and part of that is Islam versus Christianity, but also part of that is the races that are in, that are in great strife in that country. We used to live there. We can tell you about it. Not only racial strife, but the rise of ungodly ideologies. This weighs heavy on our mind and our heart. This hurts us as we look at the ideologies that should be foreign to us that are not, that are becoming increasingly common. The issues of abortion and the attack on marriage, LGBTQ confusion over marriage, the rise of socialism and secularism, things that we would say, where is this coming from? And of course, we know where it's coming from. In part, it's a sharp decline in biblical values. As we walk away from God and His Word, we see the ills of society and the ills of humanity rising up and coming to our door now increasingly as our, as our culture has said no to biblical truths. And this does bring, in fact, cultural upheaval in general. We see it in, in every imaginable way from classrooms on the college campus to the high school campus to the middle school campus, even to the preschool campus, even as we've noticed already political meltdown, partisanship that is very extreme, and even now an anti-constitutionalism that has been rising up increasingly. Rioting and civil rest are images that we've seen on a near constant basis over the last several months. Even natural disasters from wildfires that seem to be stronger than ever before and hurricanes. I mean, my sister lives in Louisiana. I think this week was number four that ran over the top of them. Imagine if you live in Louisiana on top of everything else, we've had four hurricanes. The rise of enemy nations a very real issue, whether through military might or whether through other technological means, the rise of military nations that are a threat and runaway technology, technology that is having its way in our own lives, technology that seems to be swamping us with data and entertainment and that the whole world is moving with it so it's hard to resist it. And that runaway technology is increasingly causing us to silo in our different ideologies and our different views, which causes us as individuals to be separated from one another, whether it be in your own house because of time. I, I spoke with somebody yesterday or day before yesterday that stopped by and he just said, man, I hate all these screens. He said, I can't get my wife's attention. I mean, you know, I'm not going to tell who it was. You know, it's, it can be the guys too. 
runaway technology, all of these things, these stresses that are upon us, it seems like all is bearing down upon us. And I want you to remember and think with me for just a moment on where we've been in our study that Israel was dealing with these great stresses upon them. They had the Babylonians coming after them, the Assyrians coming after them. They had troubles with their own leaders. Their own leaders we studied last week were corrupt. There were people oppressing, stealing property, taking land. All of the trouble from both within and without. And in the midst of all of this, we want to see this morning that God's glorious message, even in this little Micah prophecy, is the message of hope. The message of hope. This is the gospel message in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And I want you to see it this morning in a very powerful way. Do you have your outline there? Notice there, chapter 4 is going to be dealing with this. Chapter 4 is dealing with God's deliverance through the coming kingdom. God's deliverance through the coming kingdom. Now, last week the term and title was this. Notice what it was. It's on the screen in front of you. Micah. Remember this one? Cannibal kings, false prophets, and what? Crooked judges. That's what Micah was preaching against. He was showing these kings that are so ruthless, it's as if they devour their own people. Horrible, horrible. They're just living. They're, 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 they're taking all of their wealth from their people that they're supposed to be caring for. And there were false prophets saying, attaboy, keep going, it's no problem. Falsely saying the words of God and crooked judges that would come and back up and even priests that were supposed to be pure that were not amidst the people. And so all of that winds up with this. In Micah chapter 3, the last verse that we studied last Sunday was this verse, and I want you to see it on the screen in front of you. In Micah chapter 3, we ended with this terrible statement, a terrible reality for them. And it was, therefore, because of you, because of those cannibal kings, false prophets, and crooked judges, Zion will be plowed as a field. So the city of God will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And look at the last phrase, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Here's the idea. The mountain of the house, that's the temple mount, and that's where the temple was. The temple is going to be wiped out because of this, and it's going to become a forest. There's going to be trees growing where the temple used to be. It's going to be a wooded height. The trees are going to come up out of where the temple used to be. Now, if you are a Jew in the day of Micah, you are terrified. You're being told that your capital city is going to be completely leveled. And you're being told that your place of worship, your place of identity with God as his special people is going to be wiped out. Everything that they thought was important was represented there, even though they did not live faithfully to it. But here they see it's all going away. It's all going to be blasted into oblivion. And right at that moment, it's as if Micah suddenly changes gears in direction. And look what comes next. We see these amazing words of mercy. He's saying to us that the coming kingdom is going to be God's mercy. Micah, the nation's hope. And this isn't just one nation's hope. This is all of the nation's hope. That the nations, where God's people come from, the nation's hope is found in these verses. I want us to see here verse 1 and 2, first of all. Look what it says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, look what it says, shall be what? Established. So we were just talking about it being wiped out, but now he's saying that God has a plan. God has a redemption. And it's going to be established as the Philadelphia, the highest, or, or notice there, underline it, the highest of the mountains. 
and it's going to be lifted up above the hills. So I want you to see in verse 1 that he's saying your earthly temple is going to be destroyed, but there's going to be an eternal temple that's going to rise. Fill that in. There's going to be an eternal temple that arises. And this is the dramatic shift, fill it in, from total destruction to glorious, keyword, restoration. Now, we use that word, glory and restoration, to describe the end game of God for His people. There's creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. Well, here Micah is telling us about the restoration. When we share those four words of biblical understanding, biblical worldview, and biblical understanding of the whole Bible, creation, fall, redemption, glory, part of the glory, part of the restoration that we get comes from Micah chapter 5, Micah chapter 4 and 5. Both of these are part of his glorious restoration. Notice here, fill this in, the message is God's hope for his people. Now, there's some question when we're looking at verse 1 and we talk about the mountain of the house of the Lord. This is obviously talking about the temple. And it's going to be reestablished. It's going to be established. Um, but it, and it's talking about, are, are, we, are we saying that Mount Moriah in Jerusalem is going to be the highest of the mountains? Like, is, is this literal? That's part of the question right here. Is this literal or is this figurative? I don't think the idea is that Mount Moriah in Jerusalem is going to be higher than Mount Everest, highest mountain on the earth. That's not really the picture here. What, what, it's, what it's really pointing to is the figurative picture that God's place of worship, that, that the place where we worship the one true God, the God of holy Zion, is going to be the, the place of preeminence above all other worship. And what Micah is saying is God's glory is going to be held up. And it's not merely about a physical temple so much as it is ultimately, like all of the other prophets that we read, ultimately they are pointing toward the great and glorious worship of God in heaven. And so as we go through the hardships and the struggles of this life, one of the greatest things that we can start to really remember and see as we go from pillar to post, getting bounced in this life, and concerned about the things that are around us, is that there is a clear message of hope that God has for His people. Notice here with me, fill this in, the earthly temple gives way to an eternal temple. The earthly earthly type gives way to the anti-type. The true thing, the true reality of this, the, the true presence of God. You see, the, the, the temple of, of David that he wanted to build, that Solomon would build, and then the second temple that was built, and then even Herod's attempt at this in, in Herod's temple, all of these were the picture of God being with his people, that God would come and dwell among them. But we see that Over and over again, the nation is messing it up. The nation is violating the covenants that God would make with them. And this representation of God's presence would be absent. But here we see that the earthly temple gives way to an eternal temple, and a temple that's never going to go away. And we can find great hope when we see the whole glorious gospel in light of this. So verse 1 is talking about the eternal temple will rise, and verse 2 is talking about that the nations, the nations are going to come. Notice verse 1 at the end of verse 1. What does it say, the last line of verse 1? And peoples shall what? Flow to it. And then look at verse 2. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. I want you to see here that the nations are going to come. Now, we know that not every person of every nation is going to come, but God's people, listen, God's people out of every tribe in every tongue in every nation, because he has his own people in every single one of those, 
Those nations are going to be represented at his throne. They're going to come. They're going to stream. They're going to flow to him. Notice on the screen in front of you, I've, I've put these, these references here, but I want you to see Luke 24. Luke 24, 44 through 47, Jesus is speaking, and here's what he said. Then he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, look what he says, in the law of Moses, and then what? And the prophets, that's Micah, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should what? Be proclaimed where? In his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So here they are walking on the road, back from the road from Emmaus. They're walking back toward Jerusalem, and Jesus reveals to them who he is, and he says, everything about me in the Old Testament is coming to pass. And I was going, to, the Christ was going to be buried and rise again on the third day, and that is going to be preached to all nations. And why would it be preached to all nations? Except that God is saving people from all nations. So what are the nation's hope? The nation's hope is to all they are invited to come to Christ. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Look what it says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and look what it says, into Hollywood, Florida. <laughs> we are the ends of the earth. We're the other side of the world. Now, very often we think of ourselves as kind of American-centric, gospel-centric folks in this regard. You know, we think that the gospel started here. No, the gospel started in Jerusalem. They were faithful to take it out of Jerusalem. And they were faithful for 2,000 years to be taking it around the world. And we happen to live in a nation that largely has a Christian foundation in so many different ways. And yes, we have been sending the gospel from this country around the world, but so have our brothers in Korea, and so have our brothers in Brazil, and so have our brothers and sisters around the world. They have been obeying this command because they know that there is hope for the nations. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 is the, the most quoted Great Commission passage, but I want you to see the end game. Notice here in Revelation chapter 5, and this is on the screen in front of you, so beautiful. This is the scene in heaven. John sees a picture of the throne, and he sees a, a scene of it, not a picture, but he, he sees the scene. This is a part of his vision. And it says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You, you paid for them. You rescued them. You ransomed people for God from, read it out loud, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here is the end state. Here is the beautiful final picture that God's presence with God's people reigning in heaven. If you've not studied heaven, you need to study heaven. Heaven is beautiful. There's a great Randy Alcorn book in the bookstore entitled Heaven. It's one of the most comprehensive works of what does the Bible actually say about heaven. And let me tell you, as we've talked about in this church, some of you are new, so I'll just say it. It's not just about fluffy clouds and harps and that little baby angels with wings, that heaven is so much more than that. Heaven is this glorious picture of a recreated, renewed earth. And it's going to even be more glorious than the first one. And listen, what we're going to be privileged to do for the glory of God without sin and without trouble and without strife is going to be absolutely, gloriously amazing. And if you just start to read what the Bible really says about heaven, it, it, is, it is something that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the great glories that God has for himself through us in heaven. And this is all part of Micah's hope. This is all part of what he is declaring. 
Well, God's people from around the nations are going to flow to this city of God. And here, notice here, how does this happen? Notice there at the bottom of the page, how does this happen? This happens, and look what it says at the end of verse 2. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, the word of the Lord. You see, God accomplishes this by his word and his will. And what is the word? You see, it's through the word of the Lord that we have Christ, the living word. He is the living word. Hebrews chapter 12 captures this. And notice, it's the same language. This is coming from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Look at verse 22. But you have, and this is on the box on the bottom of your page, in the gray box. Look what he says. But you have come to, what? Mount Zion. There's the mountain we're talking about. And to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. So this this picture, you're coming into the city, and there in the city, there's a myriad of angels, and they're rejoicing, and they they are in all of their great adulation of Christ and of God. Look what verse 23 says, and you're coming not only to the angels in festal gathering, verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn. Now who's the firstborn? That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Colossians says, is the firstborn from the dead. And who is the assembly of the firstborn? Say, I hope me. I mean, I I hope you would say that. The assembly of the firstborn, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are in Christ, we are the assembly. And so this is coming. Angels, the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, into God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Look what it says. And then finally, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You see, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Abel's first blood offering that he made, this is the fulfillment of that. Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, the one who comes and brings forgiveness and brings the two together through his own blood. How does the kingdom come? It comes through Jesus. How does the kingdom come? It comes through the sacrifice of God, of his own son for us. And when can we experience that? Well, that's the interesting part next. You see, our salvation is now for those who are in Christ. Your salvation is now. You are saved. This is the already. For those of you who are Christians and in faith in Christ, you already are experiencing this hope. You already are experiencing this victory. You already are experiencing this life in Christ. That is the part of your salvation that is already. But you are not yet experiencing all that you will experience. I want you to see the next is heaven to come. So we have the already, but we also have the what? The not yet. Now, what we need to recognize is is that the not yet that the Bible talks about can help you get through this present life in a powerful way. It is the not yet that I look forward to. You know, I have some arthritis issues. I've had two shoulder surgeries, a knee surgery, and now we're kind of thinking about the hip. I mean, it's just miserable. Getting old is not for wimps. And, you know... I look forward to a day when nothing else is going to hurt, and I'm going to have a new body, and it's going to be the original one that God has established for all of eternity. And as he made it without sin and without all of the harmful effects of sin, there's going to be no more divorce. There's going to be no more strife. There's going to be no more abuse. There's going to be no more stealing There's going to be no more sickness, sadness, loss. There's going to be no more confusion. There's going to be no more psychiatric issues that we deal with. There's going to be no more of these things as we come to the not yet. And then it will be so. Notice here with me in Revelation 21. So beautiful. And this is on your backside of your seat, page 2. 
Revelation 21, verses 1 and 9 and 10 and 24 and 24, 22 and 24. This is John's vision. Look what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. That's the idea of the sea being no more. That very often in Scripture that's talking about um, the, the dread of sin and the judgment of sin and the darkness of sin finally being God. So to some degree this is a figurative statement here. But look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who's the bride, the wife of the Lamb? The church. That's his people. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the Spirit to what? To a great high mountain. This is what Micah is talking about. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. You see, God, the Bible tells us that God is light. It's what he is. He's light. And its lamp is the lamb. By its light, here it is again, will the nations walk. So God has a glorious plan for the nations to be together, the nations of his people walking with him. Now verse 3 is another key part of this vision of hope. And this is a beautiful part. It has the word judge in it, so we're going to see what this means. He, look what he says. And he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, the part of the picture here is that God is going to be the one that has perfect judgment and will bring perfect peace. This is God's grand plan in the end. That there's going to be a perfect judgment, and it's the judgment of God, and it's going to be a perfect peace. Now, look at verse 3 at the top of that. It says, he shall judge between many peoples. It doesn't say he shall judge many peoples. It says that he shall judge between many peoples. This means that as you come before a judge, you, you come with issues, and the judge says, okay, this is what's right, and this is what you're going to do, and this is, what everybody's, this is how it's going to work. And he coordinates this. And so part of this is not just a judgment of condemnation, but now we see it's a judgment of perfect coordination. And this perfect coordination is going to bring peace. You see, sinful rulers bring war, but God's perfect rule brings peace. We are looking forward to a day, as Micah says, that looks beyond this present moment of destruction and trouble and stress, but we look to the day when it will be over with all of the bickering. It will be over with all of the foolishness and with all of the selfishness and with all of the land grabbing and all of the, the oppression of the poor and all of the racial strife, strife and all of the family strife. Finally, it will be peace. Look at verse 4. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. See, fill this in, number four, God's people will enjoy peace and prosperity. They will enjoy the, the fruit of their labor. That's what it's talking about here when it talks about he shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. That's the one he maintains. You know, when we get to heaven, there's going to be a glorious working that we do. You thought, I thought when I got to heaven, there's no more work. No, it's just going back to the way it was before the fall. Work won't be a, won't be a, a curse. It won't be part of the difficulty. Work Listen, our work that we will do together will be a glad and good thing. You remember with me that God worked when he made the earth. 
God worked when he made the universe and on the seventh day rested. So when we get to heaven, there's going to be this glorious work without, listen to this, a glorious work without problems. Wouldn't you like to go to a job that has no problems? Wouldn't you like to go to a job where it's not by how hard it is and how, how terrible it is that you have to get this thing done, you have to push through and the pain of it all? Wouldn't you like to go to a work where it's not by the sweat of your brow that there's success? That's exactly what God is saying. You, we, we will be in league together. Instead of having weapons and fighting one another in all of this picture, we're going to beat our weapons into Things that we can beautifully work with and be useful instead of destruction, to build instead of to tear down. And in verse 4, we will enjoy the fruit of our labor and no one is going to come take it away from you. How do we know that, that, and fill this in on the right-hand side, your work will be fruitful, you will enjoy rest, you will enjoy safety. That's what he's saying, no one's going to come take it away from you. And how can we know that this is going to be true? Look at the end of verse 4. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Can you underline that phrase, Lord of hosts? You know what Lord of hosts means? The warrior of the universe. The one who has all power and commands the hosts. He is the one who's guaranteeing you everything's going to be just fine. He has made this promise. So when God is, prepare, is, is proclaiming to us this message of hope, he's putting his name and his word and his hosts behind it. You can rest in it. He's going to deliver. Look at verse 5. For all the people's walk, and so, so, so suddenly uh, Micah goes from um, the destruction to the hope, and now he comes back to present day. And so this is a a run back to the present day thought. He says, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So he comes back to the present mess. You know, the reality is we have to live through this week. (laughs) The reality is we have to live through the end of this year, right? And there's things we've got to face. There's things that we're going to experience. There's things that are unknown. There's things that are, that are there that we're not sure exactly how it's going to turn out right here, right now. But part of what we see here is that even as we come back to this, some people are going to trust in the Lord and some people are not. They're going to trust in the gods of politics or they're going to trust in the gods of their ideologies or they're going to trust in the God of their money and their possessions, or they're going to trust in all of their entertainment, or they're going to trust, they're going to trust in other gods. You know, the, the, the greatest problem of our sin is idolatry, worshiping something besides God. And here we see that there's other idols. And the peoples, all the peoples, are each going to walk in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. So here's the point. Everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. The human heart was made to worship. That's how we are created. You're going to worship something. There's either things in this life that you're going to seek to worship or you're going to worship the one true God. Here's what it says. We worship YHWH. What in the world is YHWH? That is Yahweh God. That is the personal name of the Creator. He's so generous to us. He's so merciful to us that He even tells us His own personal name. Now, we put in some vowels there that we think ought to be there, and it becomes Yahweh. But God reveals to us Himself as Jehovah God, the one true God, the eternal God. So does not Micah chapter 4 verse 5 echo Joshua 24? Notice what Joshua 24 says. Choose this name whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river that was back toward Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell, 
they're coming into the promised land. Choose whom you're going to worship. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This was the great, glorious call of Joshua to be faithful to God. And even in the midst of the troubles, in the midst of impending armies and even doom that is coming, to cry out and to hold on to the mercy of God, we know that there were many Israelites that never turned and trust the Lord, and they were destroyed. But there were some, a remnant, who heard Micah's words, they repented of their sins, and they ran and they put their hope in the Lord their God. And they had a hope that God would deliver. They did not know his name would be Jesus. They did not know what century he would come, but they knew that God had promised a Messiah. And they came and trusted in him. Now, there's some key applications as we look at this, and I want to encourage you to write these things down and think about them. Number one, God is fully aware that we need the promise of his mercy and reward to walk with him faithfully through this fallen world. He's fully aware that that's what we need, and that's why we have the prophecy of Micah. That's why we have the prophecy of Amos. That's why we have the prophecies of the Old Testament, and that's why we have the fulfilled prophecies of the New Testament. That God knows that we need the promise of his mercy and his reward. Now the question is, God is fully aware of that. The question is, are you aware of that? Do you realize that you need to study the promises of his mercy? Now you say, well, pastor, I'm here listening to you. I think I, I, I mean, I'm feeling I need something. I'd say, good job. Praise the Lord. That's why we're here. We're studying the promises of his mercy. And that's what helps us to look to him and to trust to him, trust in him through these great and difficult days of this life. We have home this morning, Edward and Jessica Nurkes. They've moved away up to the state of Florida a little bit. And Edward's finishing up some, some uh, maintenance chemo. Many of you know that Edward was very sick, sick unto death with lymphoma. Many, many times as Edward was struggling through this great trial of his life, he and I would talk, and we would talk about the promises of God. And Edward didn't know whether God would have him live very much longer, but Edward continued to say, but he's made promises. He's made promises about, if not now, then, that he will deliver on, and they will be beyond anything that I've ever experienced. And you know, every single one of us, if the Lord tarries and doesn't return tomorrow or tonight, we, we are going to go through the valley of the shadow of a death. And the question is, where is our faith? Are we looking to God, trusting to God, looking to his promises and his reward? Because Hebrews eleven six 6 says, for the Lord is a rewarder of those who seek him. Do we seek him? Number two, study God's work in your salvation. What did God do to save you? That's what we were looking at at the bottom of the, of the sheet one in Hebrews where it says that Jesus came and is the mediator. Have you studied? Do you know what God did in order to forgive your sin and to cleanse you through him? The, that is the picture of our salvation. When we study God's plan for heaven and we can be amazed at both you know, when you really start to study how a holy God would lay down his life for your sinful life, that becomes more and more and more amazing. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I'm amazed that he would do that for me. And so is my wife. She's amazed that he would do that for me. You know, the, the picture is, is that our salvation is a glorious thing that God has poured out to us. And as we study it, and as we study even heaven, we begin to see the amazing work that he's done. Number three, if you haven't already, choose today whom you will serve, the Lord or lesser gods. For some of you, today may be the day that you need to lay down toying with the lesser gods and say, by his grace, 
I want to turn and to worship him and him alone. I want to serve him and him alone. Friend, you need to do that. If you've not come to faith in Christ and you hear, you sense God's calling you to trust in him, if he's saying right now, that's you, you need to do that. Friend, I encourage you to lay down your resistance and surrender to the great, gracious high king of heaven who says, I gave my son for you. Why would you turn away so great a gift? Would you stand with me for prayer? With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to ask you this question. Are you trusting in the high king of heaven or are you trusting in the other things of this life that are going to disappoint? No presidential candidate can deliver what God can deliver. Nor will any one of them deliver what God can deliver. There is no job, there's no retirement, there's no investment, there's no relationship that rivals the glorious nature of our loving Father. The Lord Jesus said, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Have you come to him? This morning, I want to invite you to come to him. We're going to sing in just a moment, and as we sing, I invite you to say, Lord, I need you. I need you and you alone to come and rescue me from my sin. Rescue me from my anxiety. Rescue me from the world that's around me that just seems to be so overwhelming. Lord, I need you. So that when I breathe my last breath, Lord, my new lungs will fill with the great air of your love and your grace and all of eternity, rescued by the Savior. Father, I pray that this would be our faith, our hope, our obedience in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need to pray with somebody this morning while we're singing, you simply go over to this side. Jim and Cindy Rizzo or Miss uh, Kelly is over here and the Spees are on this side. We would just love to pray with you. Nobody will embarrass you. If you just need to say, I need Christ this morning, come. Maybe you need to come and lay down. Maybe you have a burden that you need someone to pray with you on. We would love to talk to you about that. Christians. Let's rejoice in the gospel and trust in him.